Meta is the wish that all beings, including yourself, will achieve happiness due to the skillfulness of your action. So Meta is not wishing that yourself or somebody else will just be rewarded with luxury, riches, and power, uh, or material success. It's actually a wish that each of us would act in a skillful, harmless, beneficial, altruistic kind way so that we will live in minds that are peaceful. And uh, indeed, uh, we can learn from modern neuroscience and all the work of neuroscientists who've demonstrated that the human brain actually does have altruistic circuits which reward us for acting in ways that benefit the tribe that we're connected to because if you think back over the course of human history, those of us that acted in ways that were altruistic benefited those to whom we were connected, those beings, those humans would have survived, passed on their genes. And so, as we've evolved over the, the human endeavor on this planet, those, we basically hardwired the brain to feel better when we act in ways that are not causing harm. When we cause harm to others, we feel either shame or the mind becomes riddled with self-justification to justify our selfishness. So it's far easier to simply act in ways that are benevolent. And so the Buddha, his wish for goodwill is simply reminding ourselves that it's very peaceful if our overriding attitude is to wish that all of us will act in kind, skillful ways so that we will achieve peace. So when goodwill encounters beings that are suffering, it naturally responds with compassion. Compassion is the second fuel of the Brahma-viharas. Compassion is the desire to see other people's unskillfulness to stop, to a wish to see people act in a way that will increase their chances of lasting peace and happiness. It's also, compassion is largely the, what motivated the Buddha to leave his, the bliss of his enlightenment and to go around to schlep. He schlepped about teaching the Dharma when he could have just sat there under the Bodhi tree and been happy as a clam. I don't know why I say that. That makes no sense. He'd be happy as a... When we encounter... Uh, suffering, we experience compassion if we have goodwill. And that's what encouraged the Buddha to teach the Dharma. And then there's sympathetic joy, which is what goodwill experiences when we encounter others that are happy and are experiencing joy in life, rather than becoming envious or jealous uh, or competitive, the, the spiritual response is to appreciate, to put effort into appreciating the skillful things that they've done to merit happiness. So, com sympathetic joy, this is called, is not appreciating the happiness or the wealth of people who have acted unskillfully. It's not something that one might feel necessarily for the Dick Cheney's of the world, but rather uh, something that we feel for somebody who's worked diligently and is finally uh, enjoying some recognition. Capitalism sort of teaches us that there's only so much joy or peace of mind to go around. In fact, that's not the case. Uh, according to the Dharma, happiness is not a zero-sum game. We will feel at peace if we act skillfully. So, <clears throat> those are the first three of the so-called Brahma-viharas. And the fourth 
is what's known as equanimity, which is a counterbalance. Um, without equanimity, we might be dragged in to constantly be caught up in the suffering of all the beings around us. Because there's a lot of suffering in the world, in case you haven't noticed. And sometimes, in fact, even people we love are suffering. And so, without equanimity, we can be fully pulled in to the suffering of people we love or care about. Equanimity is the wisdom to know when it's time to detach and to focus our efforts elsewhere in a direction where we can do some good. For example, if I was a talented brain surgeon, which I certainly am not, but were I, and I could do an operation that could uh, help people survive that otherwise might perish, you would not want me to become so caught up in the suffering of one person that I couldn't help, to the extent that I didn't <clears throat> or couldn't pull my attention to all of those people that I could help. You would want me to be compassionate when I met with somebody that I couldn't operate on. But at the same time, you'd want me to be able to detach and say, now I need to attend to those I can be of service to. So equanimity doesn't so much just give up on being skillful it points me in directions where I can help others. It's easy to feel equanimity towards people we don't know or we don't care about. It's not particularly easy to feel equanimity towards those we love in our family or people we're in relationship with. So equanimity is a, is a practice that changes depending upon how close we feel towards those we need to practice it towards. The Brahma-Viharas... The idea is to practice them universally in all directions. Now, if we all came from the exact same personality type, we'd all have our assignments here and we'd be good to go. That would be enough. And uh, it would be for each of us to go forth and to practice the four attitudes of goodwill, compassion, appreciation, and equanimity. But human beings don't come in just one type. In psychology, contemporary psychology, we see that, in fact, there are different attachment styles or different essential characteristics that determine how we relate to other people in our lives, especially people <coughs> that we are in romantic or vulnerable interactions. And so some of us, find it very, very easy to connect. And some of us, for different reasons, find it very difficult to connect. Some of us want to connect at all costs and are willing to drop all of our boundaries and to get caught up in a single relationship. Others, at the first line of any difficulty or interactive challenge or interpersonal conflict or obligation, the first moment that things become difficult, want to flee. The Brahma-Viharas are actually tools, but each of us needs to discern which ones we need to practice with greater effort and which ones we perhaps don't need to focus on as much. In early life, depending upon how securely connected we feel with our caretakers, that in essence plays a significant role in what kind of adults we will grow to become. If we feel 
that our caretakers are available, care about us, are tuned, attentive, emotionally tolerant, they understand us, then there's a very good chance that we'll wind up to become assured in uh, our relationships. We'll act in a secure way. When we feel secure, we'll be willing to be less defensive. We'll be willing to stay in relationships when it's difficult. We'll be willing to compromise, yet we'll also, at the same time, maintain boundaries. We'll be willing to empathize with difficult emotions that our partners are feeling. We will, in essence, be able to stay the course. Now, people who are secure make up between, depending upon which surveys you go, make up around 50 to 60 percent of the population. Somehow I never meet them. (laughs) As many of us don't come rushing into Dharma punks on a winning streak in our lives. (laughs) I... I get to meet very many people who come from not an entirely secure attachment style, and that's fine, because I actually love the work I do as a mentor and teacher, uh, working with people who come from the other uh, types of attachment. So, if in childhood there's an early abandonment where the child wishes it could connect with a caretaker who for any number of reasons is or feels unavailable, perhaps due to a divorce, a death, a separation, or perhaps the parent is simply inundated with work, wherever there's a feeling of yearning to be closer to a caretaker, that person can grow up to be what's known as anxious in the way they attack. An anxious person is one who is set to expect abandonment in their relationships. They thus want to get closer to the people they feel attracted to. People who are anxious by nature don't very often state their needs as clearly as they could. They can be prone to hinting at their needs because they're so expecting disappointment. They would rather not be clear about what they need because that way they can spare themselves, I think, the pain of the expected disappointment. So one of my favorite examples would be a secure person who's having their birthday would say to their new girlfriend or boyfriend would say, hey, on Friday it's my birthday, I'm thinking of having some people over, would you like to come? It would be great to have you. An anxious person will say, so, on Friday it's my birthday. (laughs) And then they'll call me up. (laughs) I said it was my birthday on Friday. And they didn't say anything. They said, oh, yeah? What do you think that means? (laughs) Which is fine. I'll say, I I don't know what oh, yeah, means. And I'll say, did you say that you wanted them to come to your birthday? And they'll say, no, they should know. They should know. It's my birthday. They should know. We've been dating for five days. They should know to come to my birthday. I love anxious people. They have amazing memories. If you're on the phone... They can, in the rumination about the relationship, go into such a detailed blow-by-blow of the most inane conversation that would immediately just fly through my mind, and I wouldn't be aware of it, but they can go in. 
So the other day, I said, do you want to go to see this movie? And he said, I don't know, is it any good? And I said, well, what do you think we should do? And then he said, well, I don't know, what should we do? And I said, well, you wanted to get together tonight. And then you know what he said? Well, we could go to the movie. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) What do you mean, okay? He should have either said he wanted to go to that movie or he should have said it in another movie. I mean, I don't know what this person wants in this relationship. <laughs> it's really fun. I actually enjoy it. Uh, anxious people are willing to drop their boundaries. Uh, they are, uh, they, for the moment they move into the relationship, they are uh, trying to figure out why it won't work. They have a whole host of what's known as protest behaviors. Process behaviors are an expectation that the other person will contact them at specifically a time or date, and if the other person doesn't, then they launch into calculating how long it's been, going on the other person's Facebook page, not returning the call when it actually does come in, ignoring the text message, basically testing to see if the other person is sincere. People who are anxious in relationships, they need to go about the Brahma Viharas in a very specific way. First is they need to develop equanimity towards that one person that they obsess about, the person that they're in the relationship with. That's the one person that they should detach, think less about, not ruminate over, not focus on, not become uh, caught up in. They should pull their awareness away. The only time they should think about the other is when they're with that person. For everyone else, the anxious person should practice metta for all other beings because when they are activated, when their attachment system is activated, when they're not getting the amount of assurance that they crave, the anxious person will lose all care or concern or all balance in their life. So it's very important, especially when activated, for them to think about all the other beings available to focus their awareness on where else in their life they could connect. Self-compassion is very important for the anxious attachment style. So when they're activated, caught up in the drama of a relationship, to really feel compassion for themselves, acknowledge that they're suffering, pull attention away from focusing on what the other is doing, and just see that they are suffering and that they're suffering because they're allowing their attachment style to win out. By which I mean, the left hemisphere, though it's the part of the brain that's intellectual and tells the story of our lives and thinks, the right hemisphere, which controls our emotions, is also where early attachment styles are kept as internal working models. And the right hemisphere also controls where our attention drifts. So there might be one point in your life, if you look back, where you knew it was a bad idea to think about someone or something, yet no matter how much you tried, your mind kept going back again and again and again to that one subject that you knew was going to cause suffering. That's because we don't have a single brain. We have a brain comprised of two frontal hemispheres that are each competing for our attention. And when activated, the emotional mind which controls the cingulate, which controls our attention, will keep pulling us back to that one thing that we know we really shouldn't be thinking about.
spiritual practice is a tool in our armor to keep again and again releasing the grip of thinking about her or him and focusing on every other person that we could be of help to. Now, suppose instead of having an early abandonment, the child has an early engulfment, which means a caretaker that feels controlling, smothering, overpowering. So early engulfment creates a sense of what's known as avoidance in future life. Uh, People who are avoidant really prioritize self-sufficiency They have terrific boundaries. They will do anything. Uh, Once they've gotten connected in a romantic partnership, their next inclination is to pull away to keep their distance. They don't want to completely disconnect. They just want to keep the other person at a safe distance, just out of reach of obligation, commitment, or intimacy, but close enough that on Fridays they can get laid. (laughs) <laughs> That's the idea. It's a magical distance for the avoidant, which is, can I just keep this person around enough that I can pick up the phone and get laid without there being any additional obligation expected of me? These people give themselves permission to deactivate their attachment and to, 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 to get away by, one, they have a story about the perfect relationship, the one that they're searching for, against which... Everybody they actually meet and sleep with falls short. They are quick to judge their partners as insane. They basically will prioritize virtually anything over the person that they're in a relationship with. Uh, These are people that do not need to practice equanimity because they do it so naturally. They can detach in the blink of an eye the moment, in fact, somebody they're with is experiencing stress or suffering, they can detach and move on. These are people that really need to develop compassion and meta for the people they're in relationship with, to feel a sense of uh, appreciation also for the strengths of the people that they are in a relationship with, a gratitude list, anything to counteract the impulse to flee the moment there's the slightest conflict, obligation, or uh, responsibility. Avoidants need to be reminded that no one deserves suffering. Suffering is a result of unskillful action. Avoidants are very quick to judge and believe that if their partners are suffering, it's simply because they deserve it. So, really, compassion is very much at the heart and meta is at the heart of the avoidance spiritual practice. Now, some people can... There are two other things to mention before I uh, draw this to a close. We don't only have one attachment style. We have... Many of us have two caretakers, two parents. And so you might very well have two completely different (laughs) attachment styles. I had a different type of attachment with my mom, who was... I was secure with, and I had with my dad, who was an, uh, an alcoholic. And so with certain type of men, I can become, uh, I can fall into a very avoidant personality type. My dad was kind of brutal at times, and so I looked for the slightest sense of macho-ness or uh, emotional unreadability in men, and my impulses to get away. I've worked with a very specific type of individual I've given them a name. The musician is a repeating pattern that I encounter. It's a guy who grew up with a mom that he felt was um, 
engulfing and a father who was unavailable. And so this musician grows up to be an artistic guy that likes to have many different sexual partners, doesn't want to get close to any of them, but God forbid any of the male members of the band he's in should ever not like a song he writes or ever make a joke at his expense, and suddenly he crumbles into the most anxious attachment style imaginable. Now, I don't want to genderize this because it's, there's no rule that men wind up avoidant and women wind up anxious. Far from it. I've met women who are extremely avoidant and men that are extremely anxious. There's no gender assignments to attachment styles. Likewise, there's finally another attachment style which, for those of us, I mentioned myself, growing up with a father who's an alcoholic, if some people grew up in an attachment with a parent who was abusive, violent, or completely unpredictable. And those people wind up what's known as fearful avoidant. And those people wind up, uh, there's a heavy incidence of drug and alcohol abuse, a tendency towards hypervigilance, dissociation, panic attacks. And in relationships, rather than be simply avoidant, keeping their distance, they will suddenly panic and flee. During sex, very often, they will shut down. So these are people that really need to practice self-forgiveness in relationships because very often children who grow up with abusive parents blame themselves for the aggression and the inconsistency of their caretakers. Now, if you're wondering, finally, as I conclude, well, I seem to be both anxious and avoidant. It's not unusual for anxious people to meet up at times with other anxious, and then one of them will act avoidant. Or if two avoidants wind up together, one of them will act anxious. But over the course of your life, most of us in the vulnerable romantic relationships that are characteristic of adult life tend to fall into one of those three categories, assured, anxious, or avoidant. It's helpful to know in terms of moving ahead in your spiritual path. For any relationship to succeed, one member has to be secure. I run into constantly anxious, avoidant hookups, and they really want to believe that together they can make it work. It doesn't work. You need to have one secure member for any relationship to have a chance to flourish.